0: It was about 40 years ago. I was with a friend of mine swimming in a quarry just outside of Ottawa, Ontario. I jumped off the cliff into the water and then when I surfaced again all of a sudden I got a massive cramp in my leg. I grabbed the leg as I was trying to tread water and I said, oh a cramp, I've got a cramp in my leg. My friend said, squeeze your lip. I said, what? He said, squeeze your top lip, squeeze your top lip. So I said, all right. So I tried squeezing my top lip. He said, is that helping? I said, no it's not. He said, of course it isn't helping you, moron. Why would squeezing your lip help you with a cramp in your leg? I felt like a fool. Have you ever done something foolish while you weren't at your best? Maybe you were in the heat of a battle and and, and you made a vow that you should never have made. Or maybe you got carried away and you foolishly signed a contract or wrote a check. I mean, you had no business putting your name on that piece of paper but your blood was pumping, your head was spinning, you got caught up in the moment, and you made a foolish decision. Do you know what it feels like? Do you have your own, I can't believe I squeezed my lip moment? Well, today, as we continue in our wilderness series, we're gonna look at just such a moment in the life of the nation of Israel. We're going to look at what they did in a foolish moment thousands of years ago, and see what we can learn from it today. Now, today's wilderness teaching is found in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus. Let me set the scene for you. The nation of Israel has just experienced the most incredible few weeks of their lives. In fact, to this day, what happened to them during that wilderness journey is legendary. After being slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, God finally sent them a leader, a man named Moses, to lead them to freedom. Now the march out of Egyptian bondage didn't come easily though. The Egyptian pharaoh needed some supernatural convincing to loosen his grip. So God used Moses to supernaturally send a plague of blood, a plague of frogs, of gnats, of flies, then a plague of livestock, on the livestock, then a plague of boils, of hail, locusts, darkness, and then the ultimate plague, the plague of the firstborn. That was when One tragic evening, the angel of death roamed the streets of Egypt, and the firstborn son in every Egyptian home died. Well, finally, Pharaoh gave up and he let the Israelites go. A few days later, though, he changed his mind and he went chasing after the Israelites. And that led to the famous display of God's power when he parted the Red Sea, allowed the nation of Israel to walk through on dry ground. And then he crashed the waves down on the pursuing Egyptian army. Well, God followed that up with miracle after miracle after miracle. Water flowed out of the rocks in the desert. Food miraculously showed up on the ground every morning. The presence of God was obvious and tangible. Well, a couple of days into their wilderness journey, the nation of Israel was camped at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. Listen to the display that God put on for the people. Now imagine yourself there as I read this from Exodus. It says on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of the mountain and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. What an incredible experience. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to see and to hear and to feel all of this? Okay then, so we have God and Moses meeting at the top of a fire-breathing, smoke-filled, earth-shaking mountain, while the rest of the nation waits at the bottom to see what God's going to say to them. They wait, and they wait, and they wait. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was up on that mountain. Apparently, that was longer than the Israelites thought it should have taken, because it was at this moment that the Israelites did something completely irrational. It was at this moment that they made one of those foolish squeeze-your-lip decisions. One of those decisions that just didn't make sense. The Bible says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, I thought I was impatient. But these folks take impatience to a whole new level. Hey Aaron, Moses has been up on that mountain way too long. We've waited long enough. We want you to make us a new God. Wait, what? Well, who was Aaron and why did the people go to him? Aaron was a big deal. He was not only the brother of Moses, but he was also Moses' official spokesman. When God called Moses to lead the Hebrew people out of their Egyptian bondage, Moses initially protested and said, I can't go, I'm not a very good public speaker. So God designated Aaron, his brother, to be his official spokesman. But Aaron wasn't all talk. God used Aaron to do some pretty impressive things on his own. I mean, it was Aaron's walking stick that miraculously turned into a serpent in front of Pharaoh. It was Aaron who stretched out his arms and that walking stick and caused the frogs to cover the land of Egypt. Yes, Aaron was standing by Moses' side during every incredible event that took place, but he was more than just a mouthpiece or a sidekick. Aaron was a powerful and influential man in his own right. That's why the Bible says they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods that will go before us. So how does Moses' brother and official spokesperson respond? Does he say, are you folks crazy? What are you talking about? Does Aaron say, there is no way I'm going to make you a god just because Moses is taking a long time on the mountain? Get out of here, people. Is that what he said? Is that how Aaron, the brother and official spokesperson of Moses, responds? Not quite. Keep reading. The Bible says, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and and bring them to me. Aaron agrees to do it. He says, all right, will do. Give me some gold and I'll see what I can throw together. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hold on, time out. Where did a bunch of slaves get a bunch of gold? Well, actually, when you read earlier in the Exodus story, when they were about to leave Egypt, the Egyptians were so traumatized by all the plagues that had happened that they showered the Israelites with gold and treasures and jewelry and said, here, please take this. Go get out of here. Get out of our sight. Well, let's keep reading. The Bible says, So all the people took off their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf a small cow, functioning it with the tool, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is madness, sheer madness. But such is the nature of sin. Folks, sin is completely irrational. Sin is never the smart choice. Sin is never the wise thing to do. Sin has always been and forever will be the dumbest thing you and I will ever do always. I mean, how many times have you found yourself doing something you know to be wrong, yet you still find yourself doing it anyway? How many times have you found yourself wandering down the same foolish pathway that has led you to destruction time and time before, yet here you go once more putting one foot in front of the other, plodding down that same dark alley? It's not rational. But that's sin. Sin, by its very nature, is madness. And that's what the Israelites do. They do the irrational thing. They ignore everything that has happened to them up until this moment. They turn their backs on everything they've seen, everything they've experienced, everything that they know to be true. They turn their backs on the God of the universe, the God who sent plagues, who parted seas, who poured water from rocks and manna from heaven, the God who who set mountains on fire above them and shook the ground beneath them, foolishly they put their lives in the hooves of a homemade tiny shiny cow it's madness sin is madness sin is absolute squeeze your lip foolishness so then why do we do it we do it because sin is a power sin is a power that grips us it's a power that cannot be overcome by our will or by our intellect or by our muscle Sin is not a weakness that needs to be strengthened. Sin is a power that needs to be defeated. Sin is a power that can only be overcome and defeated by God himself. And that's exactly what God did through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote this, He said, for he, God, has rescued us from the dominion, the power of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what he's saying there? He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of his Son, in whom he loves. God recognized the trauma that we are under. God recognized the trap that we were in. God recognized that there's nothing that we could do to overcome the power of sin in our lives. No, don't get me wrong. The power of sin was unleashed by our own decision, by our own choice. But deciding to sin is like jumping off a a, a tower, jumping off a balcony. Once you commit, gravity takes over. Once you decide to sin, the power of sin becomes active in your life, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so God did what we could never do, The Bible says the wages that sin pays, the consequences of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Notice it's a gift. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can do on our own. It's a gift that we receive. Jesus came to rescue us from the dominion, the power of darkness. He did that through offering himself as a Messiah, himself as a Savior. He paid our moral debt to forgive us and to rescue us, and to allow then the Spirit of God to come and live within us, to give us new power to live above the power of sin. Have you received this gift yet? If you haven't, at the end of today's teaching, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. So get ready, prepare yourself. Okay, back to today's lesson from the wilderness. We have a bunch of people who turn their backs on the living God and instead chose to create and worship an idol of their own making. Now, what can we learn from this? I mean, what possible lesson can we mine from a bunch of idol worshipers? We tend to think of idolatry as a sin of the past, don't we? It's certainly not something that we see in our Western culture today. It's not something we find ourselves particularly tempted to do. I can say this, in 36 years of pastoral ministry, I have never ever ever had someone sit down in my office and tearfully confess to secretly melting down their grandma's earrings so that they could make themselves a tiny god. Idolatry is not something that's on our radar, is it? I mean, we don't have idols in our culture, do we? You might be surprised. I would propose to you that idolatry is alive and well in our culture today. We just don't recognize it because we don't know how to look for it. We think idolatry is bowing down to a statue or praying to a trinket and since we don't do those things we assume that we don't wrestle with idolatry. But I would propose that we need to think again. This is crucial. An idol does not have to be a statue. When we make any one or anything more important to us than God, we have wandered into idolatry. I'm going to say that again. An idol doesn't have to be a statue. When we make any one or anything more important to us than God, we have wandered into idolatry. Listen, even good things can become idols when we make them the ultimate thing in our lives. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything. An idol is anything that controls your heart, or consumes your attention, or rules your mind. Now listen, it's easily, easy to, to villainize some ancient pagan half-man, uh, half-human statue. That's clearly an idol. But it's harder to villainize a picture of your family. You say, how can a picture of my family be an idol? If your family is more important to you than God, your family is an idol. An idol doesn't have to be a statue. When we make any one or anything more important to us than God, we have wandered into idolatry. We can take good things and turn them into idols. We can take wonderful, God-given things and turn them into idols. And when we do this, it does not mean that those things have become bad. It means we have become foolish. And that brings us to today's big idea, where we summarize the teaching so far. Here it is. When a good thing is turned into the ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. When a good thing is turned into the ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. Are you in danger of being an idolater? Are you in danger of placing one or something at the center of your life, a place where they should never be? Are you in danger of turning a good thing into a destructive thing? Well, let me help you to ponder this possibility in your life. I'm gonna offer you, uh, for your consideration, three common idols in our culture, three good things that our culture often turns into ultimate things, which then turns them into destructive things. Now, before I give you this list of three things, let me be very clear. I am not saying that we need to rid ourselves of these three things. I am not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we need to make sure that these three things are kept in their proper place. These are three good things that our culture often exaggerates, worships, and turbocharges. These are three good things that our culture foolishly turns into ultimate things. And when a good thing is turned into the ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. All right, here's the first of the three common idols in our culture. Identity, or how we appear. Identity, or how we appear. How much of your value is tied to what you achieve or how you appear? What role does social media play in your life, for example? How much importance do you place upon the likes that you receive and the comments that you read on your posts? Is your day ruined when people don't praise you like you think they should? Is your value tied to how many followers you have? The truth is, a couple years ago, I decided, decided to shut down all of my social media. I'm not saying you have to do that, but all I can tell you is when I did that, it was incredibly liberating in my life. What about your position at work? How important is it to you that you be recognized and promoted? Is your career at the center of your existence? What price are you willing to pay to climb the ladder? What are you willing to do, or better yet, what are you not willing to do to move to the next level? Now, for many people in our culture, their identity is their idol. Who they are, what they have accomplished, and how they are perceived are the most important things in their world. Their identity, how they appear, consumes them. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It is not bad or evil to enjoy being liked or to appreciate being approved or to desire to be promoted. These things in themselves are not bad. These things in themselves can be good. But when a good thing is turned into the ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. When we place more value upon who we are than who God is, our identity has become an idol. Something good has become something destructive. All right, here's a second common idol in our culture. Money, or what we have. Money, what we have. Now, before I quickly unpack this one, I need to be very, very clear. Money is not evil. But Pastor Darren, doesn't the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? No, the Bible does not say that. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that money is the root of all evil. What the Bible does teach in First Timothy is this. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not evil. Money itself is not bad. Money is a tool. And like every other tool in the world, it all depends on what you do with it. Money and wealth are, in fact, often portrayed as signs of blessing in the Bible. Proverbs says, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. I mean, do you see that? God is not opposed to his people having money. He's even open to you having easy money without painful toil for it. The danger is when we make money or the pursuit of money our goal in life, our purpose in life, our priority in life. In Colossians chapter three, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. For example, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Do you see that? Let me read that last part again. Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The Apostle Paul just equated greed with idolatry. There's no mention of statues or bowing down before strange altars. Yet, nonetheless, Paul says greed, the lust for money... Is a form of idolatry. When a good thing is turned into the ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. In fact, when we are motivated by pursuing money more than pleasing God, money has become an idol. Something good has become something destructive. Alright, the third common idol in our culture is entertainment or what we experience. Entertainment! What we experience. We live in a world where we carry around a world of entertainment in our pockets. Every song ever recorded, every movie ever made, every tv show ever produced, every book ever written is within a couple of taps of our fingertips. There is a world of entertainment within our grasp and it is intoxicating. When I'm bored or when I'm depressed or when I'm frustrated, I can reach for my cell phone and fill the void with a jolt of entertainment. Something to make me laugh, someone to pick me up, something to change my mood. I mean, it's all very entertaining and it's all just a click away. It's easy to become addicted to the distraction. It's the truth. I mean, I can be sitting and watching TV, and if a commercial comes on, I'll pick up my phone and I'll scroll through. Or I can be talking with friends, and when there's a pause in the conversation, or when, you know, one friend is talking to another, I'll pick up my phone and just scroll through, see what's out there. Or I can be in a meeting, and when I'm not particularly interested in what's being spoken about, I'll grab my phone and scroll through and see what's happening there. The briefest of pauses, and I'm tempted to reach for my phone. In fact, I wonder how many of you right now are watching me on one device while you're randomly scrolling through another device. I wonder how many will manage to watch everything I say today. I wonder how many have already bailed out on this sermon at the first moment their mind began to wander, at the first moment they ceased to be entertained. Again, let me be clear about this. Entertainment in itself is not evil. The visual arts, the spoken and the written word, the musical arts, creativity, humor, sporting events, all of these things are gifts from God. Entertainment is not evil, it's not bad. But when a good thing is turned into the ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. So, Darren, when does entertainment cross the line and become idolatry? When we run to the world of fantasy more than the Word of God, entertainment has become an idol. When we look to movie stars more than the maker of stars to feed our souls in our time of need, we have crossed the line into idolatry. That's when something good has become something destructive. I could go on. I mean, the list of idols in our culture is certainly longer than three, but I think you get the point. Idolatry is not about statues. Idolatry is placing any one or anything in the position that only God can fill. So let me ask you, are you in danger of the sin of idolatry? Are you in danger of turning a good thing into the ultimate thing? Let me conclude by equipping you to answer that important question. I'm going to very quickly leave you with what I'm calling three idle-detecting questions. Three simple questions that, if answered honestly, should tip you off as to what is happening beneath the surface of your life. Three simple questions that should help expose what's truly going on in your heart. Here's the first one. How do I spend my time? Honestly, what activities take up the most minutes and hours of your day? Who or what is the recipient of the best of the limited moments in your life? I mean, try activating the screen time feature on your phone, the one that allows you to, and shows you how long that you've been staring at your device over the last few days. It can be a sobering statistic. How you spend your time is a strong clue regarding what really matters in your world. Second question. Where do I spend my money? Who or what wins the financial face-off in your life? I mean, there are so many options, but only so many dollars at your disposal. So who or what wins that competition? If you wanna do an honest investigation into your life, there's a lot of truth to the old saying, follow the money. Finally, the third idle detecting question to ask yourself is this. What is my source of fulfillment? Meaning, who or what do I turn to in my darkest moments? Who or what do I rely upon to meet me in my time of need? Who or what is my go-to resource when the chips are down in my life? Answer these questions and you are well on your way to knowing who or what lies at the center of your life. Now, if after you, ask yourself these questions, you discover that anyone or anything other than God sits on the throne of your life, you would be wise to stop what you're doing and really start to ponder things. Learn today's lesson from the wilderness. At the end of your life, it will all come down to this. You either worship the creator of the universe or you worship your own version of a tiny, shiny cow. Which option have you chosen? Let's pray together right now. God, search our hearts. Look within every one of our lives. You know what's on the throne of my life. You know where I turn. You know uh, who who my source of joy and life and fulfillment and purpose is. God, I want it to be you. I was created to have you at the center, at the core of my life. So I pray. Search my heart. Reveal in me any wicked way that is in me and lead me in the way of righteousness and truth. Maybe you're watching today and you realize that God is not at the center of your life. You have an opportunity to make that decision right now. Just pray this prayer with me as I pray. God, I acknowledge that I have rebelled against you. Like the Israelites, I have created my own version of an idol. I've placed something other than you at the core of my life. And it doesn't work. I am imploding. And so I choose to take that garbage off the throne of my life. And I invite you, the creator of the universe, to come and live within me. I acknowledge my rebellion against you. I confess it. I turn my back on it. I don't want to live that way anymore. Come and fill me with your spirit. I believe Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again from the dead. I give you my life. Change me from the inside out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, on the screen right now will be a number. You can text that number and someone will help you take the next step. Now, we're not tricking you. You're not joining Broadway Church, but we're happy to help you, to pray with you perhaps and help you take the next step in your journey. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us this week on Broadway Church Online and on Broadway Church on TV as well. God bless you.